today on Ag News Daily. I guess the big wild card then is going to be the seed and how much of it can go to wheat. Um, I know wheat has its own problems now, but if you consider feed wheat, you look at the U.S. balance sheets and what could be used for feed. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is a Monday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Well, I suppose it's a Monday almost everywhere, but we're glad you're listening to the podcast today. I am Mike Pearson, joined today by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? I am pretty good, Mike. How are you? I am very, very well. Thank you for asking. I'm also very excited because after a week's absence where she has been keeping young people in line, we are joined <laughs> again by our intern, Madison Honkamp. Madison, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Mike. Good. Nobody uh, nobody died on your watch? You kept them all safe there at camp? Nope. Everybody um, made it through the week and all returned home safely. Fantastic. <laughs> We like to hear. Got to keep that next generation safe and sound. Exactly. Well, I tell you what, there has not been a whole lot of news today, but there was one big story that has kind of been dominating the uh, mainstream news when it comes to USDA. And Madison, why don't you give us the uh, the overview? What's really on pretty much every website today? Well, Mike, apparently uh, this kind of huge story has come out that the USDA has failed to promote or acknowledge its own science behind climate change. And they're getting a lot of criticism for this because the U.S. is supposed to be kind of a leading um, country in research and developing different ways to avoid climate change or kind of slow it down, so to speak. But last year, USDA researchers collaborated with scientists all over the world and were able to publish groundbreaking study um, to kind of find how CO2 is rising through rice and how rice is losing vitamins and all of these different things that are contributing to climate change. But they were kind of keeping it on the down low Um, keeping it out of the eyes of reporters and really just kind of keeping it from the public. Yes, it certainly is an interesting topic and uh, it's certainly been been seized on. But yeah, basically, uh, according to the USDA, they were, or according to the research, the USDA had declined to issue press releases on more than 45 different studies that were peer-reviewed that came through the ARS, the Ag Research Service, which is nonpartisan, And um, basically, yeah, they they were all studies looking at what effects climate change could have on Mm -hmm. agriculture. Like you mentioned, rice losing vitamin in a carbon-rich environment. And there was a warning that perhaps increased temperatures could boost pollen levels and intensify allergy season. And Mm -hmm. uh, and none of these things were promoted by the agency. And, you know, that, uh, that has some folks going, well, hey, we're funding the work. We need to be able to know what the work is about, Mm -hmm. which I think is a fairly reasonable concern. Yes, definitely. And I can definitely vouch for the allergy seasons because I don't know if you can hear my voice right now, but I am stuffed up like crazy with allergies. Well, that's what you get for spending a week out of the office. That's why we're never going to let you go again. (laughs) Oh, geez. What do you got? Yeah. I've got a couple of things jumping out at me today. The first is here an issue that we've debated a lot on the podcast, and that is whether or not SNAP recipients and grocery stores and retailers should 
have to release their information about who is redeeming SNAP at their or those SNAP discounts or, or benefits at their program or at their stores, the Supreme Court ruled today under the Freedom and Information Freedom of Information Act that those people will not have to disclose their SNAP redemption data. And they said at least where commercial or financial information is both customarily and actually treated as private by its owner and provided to the government under an assurance of privacy, they will not make those folks release the information to the public about, you know, the number of sales that they're having for SNAP recipients, that kind of a thing. Okay. So that's going to, the government gets that data, but we're not going to see it. Correct. Okay. Which, you know, again, I, I wonder what the reasoning was behind getting that publicized. I'm not, yeah, I don't know. Was it yeah, to I'm kind of make sure like people weren't you like overusing it almost well that's what i wonder but i mean that would only seem to i don't know it would seem like you could scapegoat neighborhoods and stuff well look 100 percent of their business is snap funded but you know if that's if that's the environment that's the environment i guess i don't know mm-hmm. what it would change but mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know either well i've got some other usda news and i thought this was really interesting you know as we talk about african swine fever we'll talk about it again in our market monday segment with craig turner it's a huge deal one of the main vectors for spreading asf is wild hogs they can eat something that's infected and then they can you know carry it with them and die and get eaten by you know other hogs that then you know get infected so the usda has announced today that it is offering $75 million in funding for the eradication and control of feral swine. This is uh, through a joint effort between the NRCS and APHIS, the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service. Um, Basically, this was included in the farm bill. And the idea is, how can we address the threat that feral swine pose? Uh, So, like I said, they've got uh, $75 billion. NRCS has $33 billion or excuse me million dollars worth of that and they are going to use that with partnerships with landowners uh, they're going to basically be looking in pilot projects in alabama arkansas florida georgia louisiana mississippi north carolina oklahoma south carolina and texas and uh, they say those are the states with the highest feral hog populations and they're going to be looking to do things that are uh, basically feral swine removal by APHIS, uh, restoration efforts, so I assume that means like land restoration after the hogs have torn it up, and assistance to producers for feral swine control. So those are all three going to be looked at in partnership. So if you're a landowner in one of those states that I mentioned, you can uh, visit your NRCS office, see if you can put together a plan if you've got a lot of feral hogs on the property. Um, I thought this was fascinating. I think this is an interesting approach. But I would say maybe maybe a faster approach would be just put a bounty on these things and let folks mm. just go hunt them. People love to hunt feral hogs, and if you could get a return for it, man, $75 million bucks would probably get a lot of those little suckers killed. Hmm. I didn't think about that. That makes sense, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, well, it'd defray the cost of a hunting trip, but right. people could still go down there and blast yeah. away to their heart's content and do something good. Well, plus, like, aren't feral hogs kind of like the leading reason African swine fever is like kind of uh, traveled so much or spread so yeah. much. 
That's, yeah, the, so, that's the kind of working theory is that these wild hogs just carry it and then they, they travel huge distances mm-hmm. and they just pass it on one wild hog herd to the next. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So USDA, if you're listening, just start <laughs> writing checks for, for dead pigs. I got a feeling we'll kill these suckers faster than we can shake a stick. I think you're probably right. I could see a lot of people enjoying hunting yes, wild hogs. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You put a value on something and you get more of it. In this case, more hunting of wild hogs. Okay. (laughs) Well, since we're talking a little bit about African swine fever and what's going on over in China, we of course know that President Trump is heading to the G20 gathering in Japan at the end of this week, where he'll hopefully have a good meeting with President Xi and they'll hopefully decide to move forward with continued trade talks that have been stalled, of course. But we saw a couple of different pesticide groups come together and file comments with the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, and that's CropLife America, as well as the RISE, which is Responsible Industry for a Sound Environment Group, today come forward and say, hey, we need an exemption on especially chemicals used in the agronomic industry on imports from China, which is about $300 billion um, in facing a 25% tariff that the president is threatening to impose in July. But they've said many of these chemicals that you're subjecting to potentially putting on another round of tariffs on are products like glyphosate, 2,4-D, atrazine, dicamba. And we cannot make or get these products very efficiently and, and need to have access to these and would like to be exempt essentially from having tariffs go on that specific product. They said, you know, whatever, you put it on the rest of the products, whatever, but these chemicals in particular, we really need them to be exempt from the next round of potential tariffs that could go into effect, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Absolutely. I saw another study conducted by the Dallas Federal Reserve that interviewed businesses, and uh, they found that about a third of the businesses have been impacted by the tariffs so far in place, and of the third that have been impacted, 86% said the tariffs have hurt their bottom line. So mm-hmm. 14% have gained from the tariffs by being able to charge higher prices. The rest have uh, have suffered in, in one form or another, and it certainly sounds like uh, – you know, the the chemical companies would be in that same boat. It does. And it sounds like we're still, you know, we're in the middle here of really this whole trade war ordeal. And we don't necessarily know the long-term implications yet. We think, and economists have said, we're potentially heading into the start of a recession or at least a slowdown of economic expansion. But we've been in a a pattern of economic expansion here officially for 10 years as of Sunday making it the longest period in U.S. history. However, this uh, comes at pretty high risk for the Trump administration and more specifically President Trump as he heads into seeking a second term here. And it's it's uh, got lots of people, lots of political folks and economic folks watching this year's political elections in particular to see if we are in fact going to see a slowing economy and how that's going to affect unemployment rates, interest rates, and and in turn affect President Trump's re-election campaign this year, or, well, this right. starting this year, so. Yeah, yeah, got to get that started 18 months ahead of yeah, time. Yeah, of Jeez. course. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. People vote with their pocketbooks. When economies are strong, presidents typically win re-election. When they're not, it is a much harder struggle. It is. So that's just another little thing 
that was pretty interesting that popped up in some news I was reading for today. Absolutely. I just have one other quick update. We talked on Friday about the opening of the Mississippi River northbound at St. Louis. There were uh, well tons of barges and or tons of tugboats and hundreds of barges ready to put the hammer down and start moving north. Well, over the weekend, a lot of rain fell across parts of northern Missouri, parts of Iowa, basically in the Mississippi River watershed. And as of late last night, the Missouri River, Mississippi River is closed again mm-hmm. at St. Louis Harbor. So speaking of an economic slowdown, we will continue to see slow movement of grain down the river and other goods back up the river as long as that remains closed. They did say... Uh, Given the potential forecast of some expected dryness across a lot of the watershed, they might be able to reopen the harbor and get barges moving again by the end of this week. So we'll uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed on that as growers try to clean out their bins here and uh, elevators just try to get some stuff moved down to hopefully some export partners waiting for us at the Gulf. Okay. I've got a quick couple of quick updates on some stories we t- discussed last week on the podcast, and then I'm out of news for today. Going back to what's going on at the USDA, they are definitely moving and shaking to get hopefully some stuff fixed this year, especially since we're seeing, obviously, pretty crappy conditions for crops. We, of course, saw the announcement about the grazing now moved up to the September 1st date. And I also want to add and clarify after speaking to some folks over the weekend and also USDA released a statement saying that you can absolutely plant corn as a cover crop. However, the catch here for this is it cannot be harvested for grain. So you can harvest it for silage or use it for grazing. And I think that answers or hopefully clarifies some concerns and questions some folks had about can I cut this grazing grass or this grass or cover crop or corn crop that we were using as a cover crop? And the, the answer, it sounds like, is yes. You can also cut, You can also harvest or turn it into silage, but it cannot be harvested for grain purposes, only for silage or alfalfa or grazing purposes. All right, folks, keep that in mind. And Lainey, I believe I also read, and you can fact check me on this, you can't plant corn if the ground you've put in to prevent plant was expected to be corn ground. And you can't okay. use soybeans on ground that was uh, soybean ground when it went into PP. That was was my understanding. I was talking with Scott Irwin about it on Twitter, and that is uh, basically our decision, okay. understanding of Yeah, I think that, that sounds right to me, too. You know, check with your FSA office if you're going to seed down a cover crop and you want to seed down corn or soybeans, but, uh, you know, definitely worth looking into, especially now that you can, um, yeah, you chop it on uh, September 1st. Yep, absolutely. All right. Any other news for us, Madison? That was all I had. How about you, Delaney? Nope, I'm out. You are out. I am out. All we've got left is the markets before we jump into our conversation for hashtag Market Monday. So, folks, our markets are brought to us by our friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, these markets continue to be insane, but there are tools available to help farmers manage their risk. They're in Chicago. They're called futures and options. Work with our partners in Zaner to put a plan together and to mitigate your marketing risk. Give them a shout at 312-277-0050 
or visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. It is green on the screen in the grains today. September corn was up five and a quarter cents at 4.52 and three quarters. December also up five and a quarter, closed the day at 4.58 and three quarters. Soybeans, the August contract up six and three quarter cents, finished at 9.15 and a quarter. November up five and three quarters, finished the day at 9.33 and a quarter. Wheat was the big winner on the day. September wheat, Chicago up 12 cents, closed 5.42 and three quarters. December contract up 10 and three quarters to finish the day at 5. 52 and a quarter. Jumping over to the world of livestock, we've got mixed trade here in the live cattle. August up 20 cents at 102.42.50. The October down 12 and a half cents, closed the day at 104.02 and a half. Big losses here in feeder cattle. The August contract was down $1.90 at 131.77.50. The September down $1.70, closed at 132.35. And big losses again, continuing Friday's sell-off in lean hogs. The August contract was down $3.67.5. Remember, they had expanded limits today since Friday was a limit down close. The October contract was down $3.67.5 as well to finish at $69.05. Jumping over to the world of dairy in Class 3 milk today, we saw some slight gains heading into the close. In the June contract, it was unchanged, actually, on the day at the close at 16.30, with the July also unchanged to finish at 17.08. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our friend Craig Turner for this week's Hashtag Market Monday. Well, folks, it is Hashtag Market Monday, and we are starting this week off with a bang, it looks like, around the board here on the markets. Well, with the exception of cattle, as we talked about, and lean hogs, but... We are going to break all of these numbers down with our friend Craig Turner. He is the author of the Turner's Take newsletter, host of the Turner's Take podcast, and uh, partner there at Daniel's Trading. Craig, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a while since we talked. It has been. It's been a minute. I tell you what, this has been a volatile summer as the trade tries to make sense of what all got in the ground and what all is going to come out of the ground here as we get through the rest of this 2019. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I was actually just driving, uh, I was on vacation last week and I was driving well along uh, on 80 and I went through hours and hours of, uh, you know, Indiana and Ohio and I really couldn't get over what wasn't planted. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see anything planted in Ohio. So, you know, we'll have that planted acreage report on Friday. You know, on the Monday after the close, we'll also see uh, the crop progress report. You know, the, we're probably done planting corn. Uh, in the United States, we're probably real close to being all sewn up for the year for soybeans. And what those numbers will be, we'll have to wait. You know, we'll, we'll see that report on Friday. But, um, yeah, I think everyone, a lot of people are looking for about, I don't know, 85 to, to, to 86 million acres on the corn. I'm in that camp, too. You know, for soybeans, it, I wouldn't be surprised if it were uh, – you know, I, I can see 82, I can see 86. Uh, it just depends on what guy, you know, who wanted to plant late and who just wanted to take prevent plant. Absolutely. Prevent plant has definitely been a big, big uh, component this year in the growing season. So we've got that report coming out Friday, Craig. What do you expect the trade to do overnights over the weekend and then also opening up into the following next Monday's um, trade day after the reports kind of have some time to sink into the markets? Yeah, so we've been in a holding period for a while. Um, you know, we've been consolidating. You know, once 
And once it was, uh, the market started to realize we we're going to have severe planting delays uh, and even you know lose acres. You know we went from the mid to high threes, you know, and now we're trading in the mid fours, right? And to go to go that extra mile, you know, to to trade up into you know the five dollar higher mark, we're going to have to see one the confirmation of acres, you know, where you know corn really does lose about eight million, um, and you know, and we'll have to see what happens with soybeans. But the the second, but that's really just the first part of the story. The second part of the story is going to be yield. So on the Monday night, you know, overnight open, you know, we'll see what good to excellent ratings are. What's interesting is the pictures I've seen and you know the country that I've driven through is, you know, some of the stuff that's been that has been emerging looks pretty good. The thing is, it looks, you know, it looks good for like late April, early May, and doesn't look so great, you know, considering it's you know mid mid to late June. Um, and how does the USDA rate that? Does the USDA look at it and say, okay, well, the plant looks good, it's good? Or is the, the USDA also the observer also take into account, yeah, it looks fine and healthy, but it's way late in the game, right? And, you know, and then, therefore, is it poor? You know, so there's going to be a, a lot of, I think, confusion um, just about how to read that, you know, from, from the, the crop progress reports. And I'll, they'll probably have more questions than answers there. Uh, and then following the report next week, when we do see that that planted acreage survey, which is going to be lower on corn and the you know we'll just have to see what happens that July WASD that comes out later in the month is going to be is what the traders will be talking about. It'll be how far does the USDA then bring down acres? They'll probably follow the the acreage report, but then on yield. Um, and so the weather here after that after that report on Friday. You know the weather and and the expectations for you know for yield for corn and soybeans are going to take center stage. Now, Craig, you mentioned we've been consolidating here, and let's talk about the corn market. We're we're sitting today here. We closed December at just uh, just under four fifty nine. When you think about from a technical perspective, what are our resistance points that we're watching for here to get up to that that kind of next run towards five dollars? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the big resistance is going to be that 470 area. That's where we kind of topped out um, in the beginning of last week, uh, and then you know, then we came back down here into into the 450s, mid to low 450s uh, for December corn. So, to make the next leg higher, it's going to be based on yield. You know, we're and it's gonna and we're gonna have to close probably above 470, make a, a, a close above 470. What's been interesting is open interest. The volume today, even on an update, was kind of light, and open interest really came down now um, since last week. You can make the case that that was because of the July expiration, you know, on the options, which is a good argument. But you know, then are you going to see the funds or whoever was long, you know, coming back into the market? Um, you know, does that mean there's more fuel to the fire? Because not only does, you know, we, when we talk about technical levels, you need volume and money and interest. You know, to push to push through there, right? So that's that's going to be interesting. And the other part of that, if we do close above 470, the yields really have to start coming down because there's definitely price rationing going on. Um, one of the reasons why we are consolidating is one, we're not know about yields, but two, at these at these levels, you start to see imports coming in to the United States, which helps the balance sheet. You see exports. You're going to probably see a continual loss of exports in the United States, right? So then, you know, there will be imports coming in, exports going out to help the balance sheet. And then what it really comes down to is 
you know, how much corn do we need for ethanol? How much corn do we need for feed? And at what point does basically wheat become corn on the feed side? And you know, so if we're talking about those kind of things, and then we're saying that we do, you know, we can't ration them or they're not as elastic as we thought, you know, then we'll blow above 470. So it's not just a technical, there's definitely a technical component to this, but also when we're this high, it does make sense to just to keep an eye on the balance sheet too. Um, and just realizing, you know, what happens when we have to ration demand, what can be rationed and what is, you know, uh, what is inelastic uh, for corn demand. Absolutely. And I want to unpack that just a little bit more, especially when you look at uh, there's been some concern that as our corn prices domestically continue to rise, maybe we turn to Brazil and Argentina, their prices might be a little more competitive here in the United States. Craig, does that put a ceiling in place then for just how high these corn rallies could potentially go? It puts, uh, you know what, it caps it's based on where you're on the country, right? Because, you know, if you're in the southeast where you can efficiently bring in corn from, from South America and also down in the southeast, they have very high basis. You know, they don't, you know, the basis high that because quite honestly, they have so many, so much demand from, you know, on the feed side. Uh, down there in the Calarinas, uh, in that area, you know, the base is so high, they can afford to bring, you know, that corn in um, from South America. You know, in the middle of the country, you know, you've got ethanol demand, and, you know, ethanol demand is pretty constant. I mean, I don't, we're, we're projected to be about 5.5 billion bushels. You can see on some days in the middle of the country, the base is getting stronger while the futures you know, basically the cash price going higher and the futures are, you know, staying the same. So it's really the cash market doing the work. We have heard reports of ethanol plants worried about sourcing corn, you know, later on in the year. You know, elevators who've already made forward contracts to sell to end users thinking they'd just be able to buy, you know, cash, you know, the cash corn from the farmers and source it later on. And now they're concerned. Um, now, it doesn't mean – so that, that kind of demand, that kind of issue, that short-bought issue – really can drive the market um, a lot higher. I do think that, you know, and the, the, so the ethanol point will probably stay strong. If the big wild card then is going to be the feed and how much of it can go to wheat. Um, I know wheat has its own problems now, but if you consider feed wheat, you look at the U.S. balance sheets and what can be used for feed, there probably is, you know, plenty out there to, to feed. Um, definitely hard red winter wheat, you know, in the western part uh, of the Corn Belt. Um, and out further to you know, substitute for corn. So when we say Catholic, when people say, hey, we're going to lose 2.5 billion bushels, that last time that happened was 2012, 2013, and we went to six, seven, eight dollars. Um, you know, the one reason why we're, so in that respect, we're kind of capped. We're not going to go that high just because South America has corn and there's enough feed wheat to help. But uh, it doesn't mean we can't go to five, you know, or, or a little bit over, you know, given you the same scenario. Well, yeah. let's talk a little bit about the soybeans. I mean, Craig, you mentioned the uncertainty we still have both with planted acres. And then, of course, as the summer goes on, we're going to run into the same conversation about bean yield. Where do you see <laughs> what do you see as the most likely possibility here in this November 19 contract? I mean, do you like making some sales in here at 933 or do you hold on to your butts and wait and see? So here's the thing with so for corn. Corn had less room for error, you know, until we've gone to a price rationing road, which is 10% stock to usage, right? And we're there now. With soybeans, unfortunately, you know, we have such a huge 
we have amount of stocks, you know, we're talking 900 to a billion, you know, for every million acres, we, a million acres we lose, we're only taking 50 million bushels, you know, off the, off the ending stock. So like soybeans at 84, 84 million acres, I mean, to lose 500 million acres, we'd have to lose 10 million acres of soy to lose 500 million bushels. We have to lose about 10 million acres. So that's not going to happen. Right. So it's got to all be about the yield. And the thing is, even if yield goes from like 49 point, five to let's say you know 46 and a half you know just you know losing those three losing those those three bushels on the yield you're taking off about 200 250 million bushels uh off the ending stocks and you're going from a billion to 900 million down to like the six seven hundred million range that's still a lot of soybeans for the market to real for the mark for soybeans to really trade 10 bucks in november we've got to be at 10 percent stock usage or pretty close to it that means we have to lose somewhere between 500 and 600 million um, bushels of soybeans. And to get there, that means yields have to come down probably to 43 or 44. So if we start talking about that, yields at 43, let's say call it 44, you know, the, the national yield gets down there, then we can talk about $10 soybeans. Until then, we've just got a ton of soybeans that we can chew through for a while as, you know, as, as the yield estimates come down. And that'll be interesting to continue to watch that as well. Craig, I want to turn the conversation here to talking about the feeder cattle markets. It seems every time corn has a rally or a good day, feeder, cattles have a, feeder cattle has a bad day. Uh, as we continue mm-hmm. to move f- towards $5 corn here, how much lower do you think feeder cattle are going to head in response to the potential of, of higher feed costs. And then when you factor in this idea of maybe turning to wheat as a feed source this year. Yeah. So that's going to be, that's going to be interesting. And quite honestly, you know, we've been, um, we've been keeping a sharp eye here on like, not just the feeders, like in November and, you know, also August cattle, the fact that the fats are down to one or two, one Oh two and, and feeders have fallen so much too, about one thirty-two. You know, you start to see some value in those contracts. And then also not just what's happening here in the United States, you know, there is, you know, the hog market is completely falling apart. Right. And that's certainly hurt all proteins. So you get the feeling that's weighing on the weighing on beef and, and weighing on cattle. But then you, you see what, you know, you going on in other parts of, uh, of the world, like in Australia are having one heck of a time right now, you know, in their own cattle market where they're, they're losing tonnage um, that they're not going to see come back. Um, any kind of exports that, you know, Australia would probably, you know, count on are probably going to come back to the United States. You know, African swine flu is not just a hog issue. That's going to be a protein issue. So for the feeders, it definitely, you know, the old trading adage was, you know, when the when corn went higher, you know, the feeders come down. Um, and at some point that's going to bottom out. But when you look at when you look at the trends going on in the rest of the world, whenever the hog market can just, stop completely crashing. Um, there's going to probably be some more support for livestock. And the first, really what looks like to be the best value or the, the ones is going to be the cattle market and probably, and probably the feeders. Well, now we got to talk about this hog market. We're down almost seven bucks in that August contract in two trading days. Craig, what is happening? This African swine fever is a real deal. We're seeing China continue to lose numbers. We're seeing it spread across Southeast Asia. It continues to be a factor in Eastern Europe. Why in the world are hogs so, to, to my perspective, undervalued today? Yeah, so that's interesting. You know, so the hog market, you know, we had this huge run up, right? 
Um, you know, take a look at August, for example. You know, we were, you know, before the whole African swine flu um, story, you know, was getting traded, we were in the in the mid to high 70s. And then we went all the way up to, you know, 100. And the idea was China was going to either be buying, you know, pork from us, or, you know, even at, you know, even if they weren't buying the pork directly from us, China would have to go out to all the other sources out there, buy all their pork, and the United States would get that residual, you know, from other nations. Um, the thing is, though, if China doesn't need pork or they can figure out other ways to, to fill their protein needs, or, you know, the thing is with China, it's not the, mo- it's not the most open economy. If they're just not going to offer pork to their citizens, you know, for a while, um, and kind of, you know, and through state controls, basically, you know, either come with other protein sources, which they certainly can, um, you know, then there's going to be no demand for, for U.S., you know, for U.S. pork. What's interesting about livestock is that while, you know, the grain markets and other markets are very international, you know, the, it, it really seems like the hog market and the, and, and the livestock and the, the cattle market really just trade much more centered on U.S. supply and demand. And the cold storage you know, and and the stocks that we see for for hogs are, you know, is very high. You know, I've seen some analysts suggest that hogs go back down into the 50s and 60s, which seems kind of crazy, especially for the summer months. But maybe October and December um, can keep on coming down another five or ten points. And the the problem is, is if there's going to be no if there's going to be no Chinese demand to the United States because this trade war becomes kind of like an economic cold war. Um, you got to take China completely out of the equation, and I think if that if that's what the funds are doing, you know, it's all about money flow. They're liquidating, and if they if they're thinking that, you know, China wants nothing to do with the United States between now and the next election, then you got to unfortunately they got to take that potential demand. So right now the, the the bears have control, the longs are just you know heading for the exits. You know, there's no I, you know, there's no you know, there's no trading isn't a team sport. Everyone you know tries to get out right. the door at the same time, right? You know, I mean, it's not, there's nothing orderly about it. So it will run its course. Um, I completely understand what the bulls say. I, you know, you, you look at the global situation and you would think pork would be better supported here. But if we're just trading U.S. numbers and you got to take China out of the equation, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good for probably another five points lower. All right. That's uh, maybe not what some pork producers wanted to hear for today, but Craig, we certainly appreciate your insight. Uh, Remind us once again how folks can interact with you on social media and listen to the podcast that you do about markets. Yeah, it's uh, called Turner's Take Podcast. You can find it in any any podcast app, and you can also go to turnerstake.com and read about it there too. Awesome. Craig Turner, thank you so much for breaking down the markets for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Happy to come back anytime. Well, Delaney Madison, I always enjoy having Craig on and uh, getting his thoughts. Listeners, be sure to check out his podcast at Turner's Take. You can get it any place you get podcasts, or you can always listen to past episodes of the Ag News Daily Podcast Delaney by visiting where? Oh, yes, you can visit globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily, or you can always interact with us on social media. Madison, you have also expanded our social media presence. Will you tell <laughs> us about all of the places that folks can now interact with us? Well, everyone can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at Ag News Daily. But also, we have it just joined Instagram again at Ag News Daily, as well as at Global Ag Network. So you can always interact with us, 
interact with us there. Send us pictures. We can feature you, give you a little bit of a shout out um, to see what you're doing within the industry. And yeah, I think that's about it. Fantastic. Well, Delaney, what do you say? Should we let the people go? Let's let them go. 